Dude, you have a spring birthday coming up? Let's make it epic with Big Air Trampoline Park inside Fieldhouse USA at the Polaris Mall. Get five extra jumpers for free with a spring birthday special when you book a 60, 90, or 120-minute birthday party online. And don't forget, all Big Air parties include all attractions, a personal party host, and more. Make it the best birthday party ever, and don't blow your budget. Book your party now at BigAirUSA.com slash Columbus. Big Air Trampoline Park inside Fieldhouse USA at the Polaris in Sri Lanka, it's been one shock to the system after another. Police versus the people on the streets of Colombo. The government has run out of money. There's no money for food, medicine, fuel and cooking gas. All of that came to a head on Wednesday, July 13th, when after months of protests, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the country and flew to Singapore by way of the Maldives. And people celebrated. He's no more our president. We have chased him out. So we have won this battle without any weapon. For the protesters, it's a moment of great victory. But it's what happens next that will determine if people's lives will actually change. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Politics in Sri Lanka are moving fast this week. On July 20th, Parliament's due to vote to elect a new interim president who will finish the term of former president Rajapaksa. Just days after he fled, Sri Lanka went into a state of emergency again. It was declared by the new acting president. His name is Rano Vikramasinghe. In this country today, there is a campaign to violate the law. What we have to do is oppose this and protect law and order. I will not allow fascists to destroy the country's law and order. At the same time, I will accept peaceful protesters, those who protest peacefully and say that the system must be changed. I also think the system of this country needs to be changed. Vikramasinghe is the man that's on everyone's mind in Sri Lanka now including Manel Fernandez, a correspondent for Al Jazeera English. Here she is reporting from outside the presidential secretariat building in the capital, Colombo. Given the sort of crucial days that we're heading into, uh, it's quite obvious that acting president Ronald Vikramasinghe is kind of arming himself with as many tools as possible to deal with the obvious expected backlash uh, from protesters. I mean, for months on end, we had a campaign to see the exit of the man who occupied the presidential secretariat. That was President Gotabe Rajapaksa. Ultimately, when he didn't go, uh, heeding all those protests for months and months, thousands of people uh, essentially converged on uh, the presidential palace and uh, they, they overran the palace, forcing him to beat a hasty exit, flee the country on a military flight. And that's where we are now. Interim president, state of emergency, former president has fled the country. To hear more about the protests and what might be next, I'm talking with Indrajit Samarajiva, a writer based in Colombo. So protesters have been waiting for this moment for days and really months. Yeah. Talk to me about your experience at the protests. What have you been seeing and what have you been hearing? 
It's like a village. I, people go there with their kids. Like I've gone there with my kids. Everybody's really sweet. We just sit around and like read Tolstoy and like talk. They're really cool people. And when they occupied these like public buildings, like the president's house and the presidential secretariat and the prime minister's house, I mean, they just opened it to the public and it was beautiful. They just set up community kitchens. They're like cutting onions. The kids are doing cartwheels on the lawn. People are going on dates there. It's how it should be. So you have a video that you posted online entitled The People's Protest in Sri Lanka, A View from the Street. And it's a view from the street, but it's also a view from on high because it looks like you're in a high rise looking down at these crowds of people. Really a joyful scene. Walk me through what you were seeing, how you were narrating that. So I mean, you can understand, like, I'm rich here. And I'm not rich to you, probably, but I'm like rich here. And so I'm effectively like a class trader. All people from my class just want stuff to like get back to normal. I want stuff to change. Mm. But so from that perspective, yeah, I'm on like the 50th. There's this place literally called the Shangri-La. We were just scheduled to go there for lunch with my friends. So we took our kids and we went and we're like literally like having gin and tonics, like watching the protests. Mm-hmm. And then we could see at the presidential secretariat, these soldiers are lined up like, like tin soldiers, literally. And then we hear a shout. And then they kind of melt away as, as people rush in. And so people go up those steps. And those are the steps where presidents have been inaugurated and the cabinet sits for their dumb yearbook photo and so on. And then people just took that over. That's around when Indrajit went down to the protests to see for himself. I just walked down to get through it. and It was like crammed. There was a lot of people. But then people, you know, they had their kids on their shoulders and stuff. And he said he felt safe in the crowds of protesters at the official buildings. I've never felt safe in these places before. These places are usually surrounded by like armed guard. And if you like try to take a photo, they yell at you. Mm-hmm. But like I felt safe now. And then so you can just walk through the whole crowd. And then I went into the president's house. and It was just like a tour. These scenes would have been unthinkable days ago. Sri Lanka's seat of presidential power. Now a sightseeing destination. A glimpse into the life of once the most powerful person in the country. Tens of thousands of people have been pouring into his residence after protesters took over on Saturday. People weren't like breaking anything or doing anything. And I think that's cool because I looked around in one of the the halls there and they had these plaques and they had the names of the guys who colonized us. And then they had the names of our presidents next to them. Like we just took over the houses that oppressed us before and put some of our own guys in there. Like what changed? The protests are part of a long-running movement known as Aragalaya, the struggle. And the main campaign was the slogan, Gota Go Home. That's a reference to Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the president who fled the country last week. But Gotabaya is just one person in a family that's become a major political dynasty. The Rajapaksa family has been in politics since the 1930s. At one point, there were five members of the family in the cabinet. But the main two are Gotabaya, the former president, and his older brother Mahinda, the long-serving president and prime minister. It's believed the brothers control up to 70% of Sri Lanka's budget at one point. The family denies this. As Inderjit points out, political dynasties are common in many democracies. And in Sri Lanka, he says... The problem goes deeper than the Rajapaksas. It's not just about this, like, one family. The guy who's acting president right now, his uncle was also in politics. That would be Vikramasinghe. 
And he's the one that Indrajit says he might be even more concerned about. The guy who's in now as president is quite possibly worse because he's smarter and more cunning. And it might be a sign of how much Sri Lanka has changed that Indrajit feels this way. Because Vikramasinghe is actually someone he briefly worked for a long time ago. Back in 2004, I worked on his campaign website. I don't think he knew my name. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I supported him then, but I was like 21 and pretty neoliberal at the time. And he says back then, Vikramasinghe was seen as a competent, economically aware guy. He's got a photo of himself and like George W. Bush that he's like quite proud of. That's who he's chummiest with. But he had this reputation for like competence. And he's from sort of the English-speaking Colombo elite and an old feudal family that owned newspapers. And his uncle was president who opened the country up to neoliberalism. And it was those economic decisions from back then that critics like Indrajit say are a key part of where Sri Lanka is today. As for Vikramasinghe, Al Jazeera correspondent Manel Fernandez has been reporting on him too. And she said just months ago, he wasn't in the political spotlight. He was literally sort of, you know, the, the door closed on him in terms of parliament. But after the general election, his party, by way of a nationalist, had one single seat. It's the oldest political party in the country. And never before has the party been unable to secure a single seat. But what happened was he was named to the nationalists and it's almost a backdoor entry into parliament. The back door that Manel mentioned means Vikramasinghe didn't even win his own seat in parliament in the last election. He managed to secure one through appointment, also known as a bonus seat. And as Indrajit says, it became a launching pad to where he is now. Just tell me how someone who loses the election for his own seat appoints himself based on a bonus seat just because his party got X amount of votes, right? So he's a, he's a guy with one seat in parliament and his party has one member in parliament. And then he somehow wheedles his way into becoming appointed prime minister. And then he somehow schemes his way into becoming president. Like that's A-level scheming. And if he was half as good at like actually governing as he was getting himself into government, then the country would be in good shape. But he's not actually good at governing. And I think he's as responsible as the Rajapaksas for the state Sri Lanka is in. And it was Vikramasinghe who brought back the state of emergency on Monday, meaning he can change or suspend any laws and authorities can detain people and search premises. Our correspondent Manel reported that it was a surprise even to others in government. It is quite stark that... uh, At the point that it was passed uh, and brought into effect, this was at uh, effective midnight, that not many people were in the know. Even the government printers that actually print the documentation, uh, there was a very small team brought in and very much on a need-to-know basis. Regardless of who Parliament votes in on July 20th, Indrajit says there will be more to clean up than the mistakes of the former leader, Rajapaksa. It's not just a story of like one bad man goes crazy and like messes up country. He has done that. But there's global trends. Sri Lanka is an island of like 22 million people. It's deeply connected to like international flows of capital and so on. So people do try to make it a story about a bad family and they are a bad family. But it's also an interconnected story, which I think your listeners are also connected to. 
Which brings us to why protesters have been occupying buildings in the first place. Even with Rajapaksa out of office, people are still struggling. Power cuts are ongoing for those not wealthy enough to have purchased a backup battery for electricity. People are waiting in line for fuel for days, like Ajivan Sadasivam, a taxi driver. I've been sleeping in my taxi. Sometimes I leave to get food, then I come back here and sleep. That's how I've been living in the last few days. I can only survive if I have fuel. Indrajit also says that he sees the change in people coming to houses to ask for food and money, including his home. And it didn't used to be like that, he says. Each thing that hits Sri Lanka, you get a new class of people who are suddenly beggars. And then there's people, of course, who don't even know how to beg because they've been tossed out of the middle class and they're going hungry. A lot of people are going without meals. The costs of everything have just gone up dramatically. I mean, inflation is everywhere, but when the currency devalued, you you could hit like 40% inflation in like a month. And it's been like that month on month. And that's what's left Sri Lanka dependent on a bailout from the IMF. This will be its 17th loan program. But as our correspondent Manel reported, for many people she's spoken to, going back to the IMF isn't enough. Ranil Vikramasinghe prides himself as coming and telling it like it is, but all he seems to keep coming out and saying every two weeks is that the next two weeks or the next three weeks are going to be crucial. So people, yes, uh, they, they, they are being told what's happening, but what is the government doing to solve the situation other than going around world capitals with a begging bowl? And for Sri Lanka, which has been a very proud nation, it has been self-sufficient, it went up to middle-income status, how was it driven? I asked Indrajit if he saw a way out of it. But he sees Sri Lanka's crisis as far too connected to a larger global collapse. I mean, look, people are like looking at Sri Lanka like, oh, look at that crazy place. Like, look at what a mess they made themselves. There's global shifts going on. Like, our democracy is collapsing because liberal democracy itself is collapsing. Our capitalism is collapsing because capitalism itself is collapsing. We're having a petrodollar crisis because the petrodollar itself is is shaking and I think eventually will collapse. Like there's a change in world order going on. And Sri Lanka is just on the fringes of this empire. And so we get it the worst. But it's coming for everyone. So I want to go back to the atmosphere at the protests because you got all these political maneuverings these schemes, as you put it, going on. But at the same time, you've got the people physically occupying the places of power, organizing themselves, and they have been organizing themselves throughout this collapse to survive. Will all of this have a lasting effect? Will it change Sri Lanka's democracy? I don't know. I've been through enough stuff and I've seen stuff around the world to know that, you know, like revolutions usually lead to counter-revolutions. Mm-hmm. And power tends to go to the most organized people. So as like inspiring as the, pro- we call it the Aragalia, the struggle, as, as inspiring as the struggle is, um, you know, we're having a revolution without a revolutionary party. And there's a power vacuum and it tends to go to the most organized. And the most organized are still like the old schemers and the elites and so on. And like the US and India and like the IMF and all are like meddling in here. And so power tends to default to the most organized unless it's taken. So I fear that it'll default the same way. 
In one of your essays from this summer, you wrote that it is honestly embarrassing and goes unspoken in polite company, but you should know how rich people are doing at this time of terrible suffering. We're mostly fine, and it's a crime. Talk to me about that feeling. Is that going to stay the case? Yeah, it's going to stay the case. I mean, so when these collapses happen, this seems to happen is the middle class gets like obliterated and people get like very poor or very rich. I'm like inflation proof just because I'm earning in foreign currency. I think we need to talk about class because it's great powers that we don't talk about it. And I have advantages that other people in this country simply don't have. And I'm not being polite by not talking about it. I'm actually entrenching those advantages. Indrajit says you can really see it at a time like this, especially at the immigration office where many people are seeking to leave. And while they might find employment, it can mean a very difficult life. It sucks because my family is doing okay and a lot of families simply are not. Like I went to the immigration office today to like get my passport, but I was born in Canada, right? So I can get out. I have a white passport. And these people are going out to sell themselves into essentially slavery. That's what rights groups have said, too. In many countries in the Middle East, Sri Lankans and other foreign workers are under restrictions that Human Rights Watch have said facilitate forced labor, trafficking, and slavery-like conditions. That migration has only increased during the crisis. When we go to the Middle East, they take our passports. And that's the life our people are going into. Do you ever feel, you you can answer this if you want to, but do you ever feel guilty? Yeah, all the time. Mm. I feel guilty, yeah. So so when someone comes to the house and they ask for food or or money, like I try to give them whatever we can. I try to, but, and um, so the traditional thing, which is a strange thing, is that they, they would try to worship me. So they would try to bow and like touch my feet. And I feel like absolutely terrible at that time. Because I mean, like, what am I giving them and what is it meant to me? And I feel like, you know, all the gods of the island are are angry. And every prophet or person I've like ever tried to listen to would say, like, give it all away. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I feel like God comes to my door and like, yeah, I feel like I do it wrong. It's a complicated moment in Sri Lanka. When I asked Indrajit if he had any hope, he said, I don't know if that's what I'm here to sell you. But for the people involved in the struggle, the ones who've refused to leave the street, the hope is also resistance. As the protesters say, it's not something that will be deterred by a curfew. That was a sentiment shared by Denise Ali, a 30-year-old protester at the prime minister's residence. It's all been captured by the people. We are just Sri Lankans here. Sri Lankan citizens are here to save the country, save the motherland. And at the presidential secretariat by two other young protesters, Harendra and Kimanta. From April 9th to till now, nearly uh, three or four times uh, state of emergency has been declared and curfews has been declared. But people came to the struggle. They are, they are never scared of this uh, suppress. We need a new system. 
we need a new governance we need new pro we need proper leaders so today we are here to change that and to bring this nation our country to a stable position we uh, until we are we are fighting until the end and that's the take if you want to hear more about the roots of this economic collapse check out our episode from april it's linked in the show notes this episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Chloe K. Lee, Nay Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Admilek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. We'll be back on Friday.